This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Best Practice. I'm Anne Arnold, sitting in for Richard Aidey. Normally on Best Practice, we focus on work, of course, but we do need to balance work with holidays. Later, we'll speak with someone who has news you might not want to hear about this, especially at this time of year. She says that less is more. The best break time might be shorter than we think. But first, let's talk about beauty in the workplace. How many of us would take the time to make the office beautiful? And why would we bother? Richard spoke to Dr Libby Sander to find out more. On best practice, we've spent a lot of time examining the workplace and how things like open plan offices, noise, even unpleasant colleagues can affect the way that we work. But we have never talked about beauty. My guest today has spent a lot of time thinking about what happens if you assess all of the micro factors of the office environment, including beauty, together rather than just on their own. So how do they all add up? What's the sum total? And how do we measure those outcomes? Dr Libby Sander is Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Bond University. She's just published a study called Psychological Perceptions Matter, Developing the Reactions to the Physical Work Environment Scale. Libby joins me now. Welcome to Best Practice. Hello, Richard. Now, I think we all understand personalities. In fact, we did a whole show uh, earlier this year on on assholes, basically, and and we un- understand things like office layout. How does beauty affect the workplace? So what's interesting is that it's something that, as you said, hasn't really been looked at in terms of the workplace before. So, you know, you might have worked in an office in the past that just had lots of grey carpet and grey cubicles and maybe the odd dead plant in the corner. And we've been very focused on making our houses beautiful and, you know, more recently, you know, our cities. And we're really seeing how the urban landscape is changing and and really becoming much more beautified. And there's really good signs science, why we should do that. But unfortunately, the workplace has sort of been forgotten about. And uh, what's been fantastic in uncovering this research is actually how important it is. So this is part of our sort of sense of the aesthetic. We appreciate it as humans. So it's going to have an effect at work too. Absolutely. It's an innate human need. So regardless of whether we sort of disagree about, you know, what is beautiful and what is not beautiful, it's this fundamental human need that we have. And so, yeah, unsurprisingly, we actually have a need for that in the workplace as well. And it has a significant impact on a whole range of different uh, attitudes, feelings, behaviours and and outcomes for the organisation as well. There have been uh, different studies before How was yours different? So what's been done, there has been a lot of research done on the workplace. Uh, You know, we've heard a lot about open plan offices and desks and, you know, even greenery recently, which, you know, is is a big part of beauty. But a lot of this research has been done in isolation. So, for example, we might look at, well, what is the effect of a lack of privacy on, you know, someone's happiness or satisfaction at work? Or what is the effect of having plants in the workplace? Does it make us more or less stressed? But what we haven't been so good at is really assessing, well, what is the interaction of all of these things? So when we add everything up, what effect does it actually have on people's thinking, on the way that they feel and the way that they perform? So the research that I did really started off with, as you said, looking at the individual and understanding 
what are the most important reactions that people have to the workplace? So how can we explain the relationship between the way that a plant might affect our productivity? And the way that we do that, first off, is to really understand how do people respond to their environment? Uh, what are those reactions that are the most important? And then after that, we can figure out, well, what kind of things should we put in the workplace in order to get people to have those reactions, to predict those reactions? All right. So how did you go about it? What did you measure? Who did you talk to? So we did a, a number of studies over uh, around about a, a two-year period. So we actually developed a, a theoretical framework and then a scale to predict uh, what these reactions actually are. And so we uh, did that across a whole range of different industries around the world and uh, trying to figure out, well, what are these reactions? And what we were particularly focused on is it shouldn't matter whether you care about the environment or not because people will say, well, you know, I'm someone that, you know, the aesthetics are really important to me and it's, you know, it really matters what the colour is and then you'll have other people who will say, oh, look, I wouldn't even notice if the building fell down. And what we established is that regardless of how important the environment is to a person in the workplace, these reactions are still the same. Then we discovered three key reactions that the workplace needs to uh, provoke. So when you go into a workplace, uh, you need to have a, a reaction of, of focus, um, one of a sense of beauty and one of connection as well. I, yeah, I was intrigued by the, how the three of them must kind of interplay because focus means uh, a, an ability to kind of not be distracted, to be get, able to get on with it. And in workplaces that are increasingly about, I suppose, dealing with ideas, um, you can see the value in that. But you, we also value that ability to connect. Those two things are not opposites, but there's a conflict there. Absolutely. And I think that's what is, uh, you know, exciting about this research is because, as you said, there's this real tension at the moment where we've been focused on collaboration and innovation and, and putting everyone together in a room with this idea that that will kind of spark conversations and better problem solving and better creativity. Uh, and to some extent it does. But what my research found is that if people can't basically do their primary job, um, and for many knowledge workers, that is thinking, it's analysis, it's being able to do focused, concentrated work. And when people can't do that, they actually become more withdrawn, they become more hostile, and they end up communicating less and collaborating less. So we actually need both of these things. But in many workplaces at the moment, the, the focus part has been largely taken away. I'm intrigued by how we map beauty onto this too, because although I think workplaces have given some thought to getting people to collaborate, perhaps less to enabling them to focus, very few, I would imagine, have thought about beauty at all. Absolutely right. Very few have. Uh, however, that is it's starting uh, to emerge, and and that has come through, I think, urban environment research and uh, certainly research in retail, where you know environmental psychology has been really well informed in terms of how do we attract people to say uh, you come into a store and then behave in a certain way in that store, say stay there as long as possible, and hopefully buy you know things while they're in that store. But we've sort of forgotten about the workplace. So there are a number. Of of factors. Uh, and one of them is this idea of biophilia, which is our, you know, human affinity with nature. So that includes things like plants, but also, you know, 
curved shapes, natural materials, things like timber, which we're now seeing obviously more and more in in many uh, different settings, and the use of certain colours, the placement of art and so forth. So we're really consciously thinking... Uh, how can we make the environment more beautiful? Because when we do, there are so many positive outcomes uh, in terms of both the employee and the organisation. What are those outcomes? Are we talking about productivity, less stress? What what, what do they add up to? You know, one particular uh, study had showed that just by taking sort of 40 second micro breaks uh, and they monitored uh, people's sort of brain responses, that you could have a reduction in stress just by looking at a lovely green wall or, you know, a lovely um, uh, setting in in terms of nature. But, uh, you know, other outcomes are, you know, largely it puts us into a more positive mood. Um, So when we're in a more positive mood, we're more likely to be creative, we have uh, more commitment to the organisation, we tend to perform better and be more satisfied uh, in our jobs as well. So there's a whole host of physiological reactions as well in terms of lowering our cortisol levels, you know, making us feel less stressed, uh, sleeping better at night. So it's a really uh, interesting fact that this has been so overlooked in organisations. Because most, most of us don't think in those terms. What we know is that we like things that are more beautiful. We, we like and we also value that ability to focus and get on with work and have an opportunity to collaborate, to have those serendipitous encounters that can often lead us to have ideas we never would have had any other way. So we kind of know what we like and you, you're able to kind of pull apart why it matters and how it affects us. Absolutely. And to say, to put these three things together, which hasn't been done in the past, to say, actually, we need to have all of these three reactions present. So as you said, it's not enough just to have a collaborative environment because that's going to be tiring and draining at some point for people. When it's noisy or they are distracted and interrupted constantly, uh, that's quite depleting uh, on a person's cognitive resources. And so then their attention suffers, their mistakes increase, you know, their ability to, to be productive goes down. So having these three factors together has a lot of effects uh, overall that we haven't seen before. So, for example, having you know a beautiful environment or having you know greenery that can also perhaps um, you know act as a buffer uh, to some reactions can. Uh, help us to restore. So it can sort of reduce the effect of the noisy environment. You know, we might be less irritated by that person who's always eating their lunch at their desk and talking loudly on the phone. You know, if we have a a very beautiful outlook, if we can see uh, something that makes us feel less stressed. So they certainly do help um, reduce some of the inevitable issues that we have in offices. Libby, did you find that there are sort of standout employers or even or standout sectors where in fact all of these things are being delivered Absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately, there are still uh, very few, but I'm happy to say that that's definitely increasing. So this whole idea of of the aesthetic focus um, is is becoming a lot more prevalent. So uh, what we're seeing in terms of of the way that work is developing is that it's very much being influenced by experience design and and even gamification in some cases I saw in in the research. So uh, people are wanting to come to work, you know, good talent are wanting to have this experience at work as they do now in many other aspects of their life. And so employers are thinking about, well, how can I create this experience uh, for people when they're at work? And, and that includes other things like food, uh, you know, aspects of health and wellness. It, it's all being designed to try and change what the, uh, yeah, how people are uh, going about responding to the workplace. Now, that sounds to me like a Silicon Valley giant 
you're describing there. Um, and famously, of course, they want to keep you at work as long as possible <laughs> to get a lot out of you. Is that who you're talking about or are, are we talking about other companies? Look, that's certainly uh, true that the technology companies have led the way. But uh, no, it, it's across all, all sectors now from, uh, you know, accounting firms, you know, law firms, you know, looking there, sort of seeing the effects of working these extremely long hours of, you know, a shortage of key talent, of burnout, of, you know, rising mental health issues in the workplace and really starting to rethink, well, you know, what are we doing? What if we have people in the workplace and because of the design of the workplace, people are only at 50% of their capacity? What's that actually costing us as an organisation? The environment really does have a huge impact on us psychologically and physically, which isn't, it, it, it's pretty common sense when we say it like that, but it's something that, that has been uh, missed a little bit. I think despite your research and despite some research for some time, we're still in an age in which uh, open plan seems to be the norm rather than the exception because it's much cheaper in terms of capital costs at the beginning or when you do a renovation. Uh, so for employers now hearing about this, perhaps still being committed to the, to the open plan approach because of the savings they can see, what would you say? So... I think the organisations that are leading the way in this space are now looking at the workplace as, you know, it, it isn't one size fits all. And I think that's what my research really showed is that, you know, I, I confirmed, well, every, every individual is different, you know, as you said at the beginning. And so people have different needs uh, in terms of the way that they work. And also, you know, most people in the organisation are doing different types of work. So we might have 300 or 3,000 lawyers, but we also have a whole range of other jobs and they don't all work in the same way. So the first thing I'd say is that one size doesn't fit all, that we really need to sit down and, and look at who are the people we have in this organisation, what are the kinds of things that they need to do, and then design a workplace where there are a variety of different spaces to cater to those needs. So the sort of acres of open plan with poor acoustics are, you know, it's just not a good idea. It doesn't work for anybody. Uh, and, you know, early research on hot desking is showing that for, you know, a large number of people that doesn't really work either. No, indeed. Libby, it's been really interesting. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Libby Sander is an Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Bond University. This is Best Practice on RN, the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anne Arnold. Chances are you are counting down the days until your summer break, and all the things you're struggling with at work, you're thinking, after I have a break, I'll come back refreshed, tackle them then. But how refreshed will you be? We can make some crucial mistakes with holidays in the length of them and how we spend them. So in the interest of stronger and happier managers and workers in 2019, we've sought some advice from organisational psychologist Amantha Imber. And if you're not getting a break over summer, we've got some tips for you as well. Amantha joins me now. Welcome to Best Practice. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to ask you about the length of the break. What, what is known about that? Because I think most of us feel, oh, the longer the better. Exactly. Most of us feel like if we can get a good three or four weeks off over the Christmas break, then we'll come back feeling really refreshed. And that's the ideal length of time. But what we actually know from research is that the, the ideal break in terms of feeling refreshed and rejuvenated is only like three to six days long. So in actual fact, 
having a short break over Christmas is perfectly satisfactory for, for feeling that sense of refreshment. Don't tell me that. I'm going to go off for a few weeks. <laughs> Don't use up all your annual leave. <laughs> But, I mean, we do at this time of year. In fact, many workplaces, and the ABC's like this, we're encouraged to take leave at this time of year because it's that quiet time. And, you know, that sort of Australian tradition from Christmas until more or less Australia Day, the country's kind of shut down. I know. And there are even some organisations that force employees to take time off over Christmas, which I kind of think is a little bit unfair. Like if you've only got four weeks and you leave, then if you're being forced to take half of that over Christmas, it kind of means you can't take a big break in the middle of the year when, you know, is also a really popular time for people to take breaks. But, you know, I think the bottom line is if you do have an employer that is not mandating any length of break, then having a short break is actually just as good as having a long break. Now, you are quoting from research, I think the Dutch did this, and one of the things that does emerge at three to six days is good, but you have to have a relaxing time, don't you? You can't just have three to six days off. That's right. And that might sound really obvious, but the thing is most holidays or certainly a lot of holidays are actually far from relaxing. Like there's navigating your way around a new place, working out the transport system, obviously packing and unpacking sometimes several times, rounding up kids, having kids in unfamiliar places. So there are a lot of different stresses that can take place. And of course, holidays is often when we spend time with families and we all know that spending time with families, while wonderful, can also be very stressful. And what research from the Netherlands has found is that taking a holiday that is actually a little bit stressful actually negates the benefits of taking the holiday in the first place. So when they compare people that took a holiday to those that didn't, those that had a stressful holiday came back feeling pretty much the same level of happiness or unhappiness as the non-holiday goers. Do you know, that makes me think that for many of us, straight away we're into the stress because if you think about Boxing Day, it's a big day at our airports, it's a big day on our roads. I once spent nine hours driving to somewhere that's actually two and a half, two oh, and a half, three hours gosh. away from Sydney. And <laughs> wow. when I got there, my wife and I had to go and try and find a bottle of, of vodka, honestly. It was, <laughs> it was terrible. Holidays can be so stressful. And obviously if we plan before a holiday, that can certainly alleviate some of the stress and make things a little bit more relaxing and go more smoother. All right. Now, how much planning is too much planning, though? Because I can imagine that it would be very easy to kind of get right into it and think, I have to get up today because I've got to do this thing and kind of lose the point of what you're doing. Yeah, that's, it's a really good point. So while some planning is good, you also want to leave room for spontaneity. So researchers have found that when a holiday is planned down to the very last second, it can actually take some of the joy out of the holidays. So researchers have come up with this term that they call rough scheduling, where on any given day, like it's not a bad thing to know what you're going to be doing that day, but perhaps don't lock things into a time. So for example, you might be catching up with a friend on the Monday of your holidays, but maybe leave the time a little bit flexible or maybe the activity that you might be doing, leave some room for surprise and spontaneity there. So if we can roughly schedule things, but leave room for some surprise, you end up feeling far happier and, and getting so much more out of the day than if you schedule things down to the very last minute. Now, what about whether to go away or to have a staycation? Because I've done both. And I actually think that 
I get more out of going away, but I know that there's quite a school for the staycation. Yeah, so personally, I am definitely a staycater at this time of year. I love a staycation in Melbourne because I feel like everyone's gone, so it's nice and quiet, but also very sunny. And when researchers have looked at this, they've actually found that the benefits of a staycation are fairly on par to a vacation. So if you are someone that is staying around in the city that you live in, that's actually not such a bad thing in terms of feeling refreshed and rejuvenated. Now, what about the devices, Amanda? Because I don't know, I just sort of feel it's very easy to be to stay plugged in, to be on lots of journalists are on Twitter and they kind of look at the world through Twitter and people can actually deal with emails when they really should be away. Where are you on the devices? Uh, So devices need to stay at home, ideally. So what we know, there was this fascinating study done that took a bunch of people on a holiday backpacking for four days in nature. And half of the people that went away actually had to disconnect from their devices. So they left every electronic device at home. And with the group that disconnected, they actually found that at the end of that four-day period, they tested them on a creative problem-solving task. And they found that those that disconnected from devices actually scored 50% higher than a group that hadn't disconnected. And there are all sorts of other benefits as well from disconnecting, such as feeling less stressed out and less reactive. You know, I think if we've got our devices with us and we're getting no notifications binging every few minutes, you're kind of naturally getting that adrenaline rush that you get when new things are happening and binging in your ear. So ideally, you want to leave your devices at home. But if that seems too extreme, then perhaps you might want to just allow a few hours a day, you know, say like two or three hours a day, for example, that are device free, because that will go a long way in helping you feel more more relaxed. Now, what about, can I ask you about sort of how you plan the end of your break because I often go to a place on the south coast of New South Wales and one of the things I try and do in that last day or two especially if I haven't been good at it is get up before breakfast and go for a swim because there's something wonderful about that and I always like to kind of leave on a high. And that's a really good way to structure a holiday. So we often get to the end of the holiday and it's the last day and we're probably just thinking about the commute back home, you know, whether that be by plane or car. But what you want to do to actually maximise the positive memories of a holiday and those feel-good emotions is plan a highlight. It could be a highlight or it could be the highlight of the holiday for your very last day because that's the thing. When you think back about the holiday, your feelings about the holiday will be far more positive than, you know, compared to if the last day was a little bit average or even quite stressful. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Now, we did promise this. Not everybody can get away at this time of year. Some people have to work. Some people choose to work. Any tips for them on really how to get through this time and and to get at least some benefit from a quieter time of year? Well, I actually think it's a lovely time to work because generally people's inboxes are not overflowing, the phone's not ringing every few minutes. So I actually think it's quite a relaxing time to get work done. And if you are working over the holidays, I would think about what is some sort of like deep focused projects that maybe you've been putting off because the year's been full of distractions that you can actually knuckle down and get to doing now because of the absence of interruptions. And when we can do that kind of work, we feel far more satisfied at the end of the day, like we've really achieved something meaningful. And what about you, Amantha? Are you having a break? 
I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm having about three weeks off, which is longer than I need. But at Inventium, the company that I run, we have unlimited paid leave, so I'll often end up taking about six weeks annual leave per year, and that's just how we run things at Inventium. And I will be staycating as、uh, myself and my family often do around this time of year. Well, I hope you have a great break. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Amantha Imba. Is the CEO of Inventium, an innovation consultancy, and she hosts a podcast called How I Work. You'll find that link on our website. And that's it for this week. Best practice is produced by Georgia Power and me, Anne Arnold. Our sound engineer is David Lawford. <laughs> <laughs>